Hey guys, Tony D here, the Building Scaling Blueprint Podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Jason Pfeiffer on. He is the chief editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and many other things. You know, that's his day job, but you know, he does so much. I'm excited to have him here to share with you. Everybody knows I'm a crazy entrepreneur. I love business, but today having Jason on my show really is going to help a lot of people just succeed. And you all know that my whole goal in life is to help entrepreneurs win. So excited to have you here, Jason. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, Jason, you just came out with your book um, and, you know, it's amazing. Building for Tomorrow, your book resonates so much with me. And I was telling Joe from Forbes, I was saying, hey, you know, I read this book while I was working out. He goes, how the heck do you read that book while you're working out? I said, it pumps me up. And that's just I my love personality. That. Yeah. So. Well, that's great. I, you're identifying a new market for me. I love it. I love it. But you know, I said to him, I said, you know, at seven in the morning, I start working out and then I go into work and my employees are like, what the hell did you do this morning? And I'm like, I read this really cool book and I came Great. in with all these new ideas. Love it. Yeah. So what inspired you? I, I, I know your story, but I, I'd love my listeners to really understand what inspired you to write this book. I mean, you've had so much experience, whether it be men's health or entrepreneur magazine, you work with entrepreneurs and, and even physical fitness is an entrepreneurial mindset in a sense. Yeah. Well, the origin of Build for Tomorrow, my book, really goes back to the questions that people started asking me when I first started as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. I was getting, it was strange. I would get on podcasts or I would be invited to events. And I was within my first year of this job and everyone kept asking me the same question, which is what are the qualities of a successful entrepreneur? And I was wondering why everybody uncoordinated had this same question. And then I, I started to think about it and I realized, you know, the questions that people ask you are really them telling you what they think your value is to them. And if you can understand what that is, what they think your value is to them, then you can really get ahead of providing value out of the gate. And that makes, that's a great, you know, powerful position to be in. So why were people asking me this question? I realized the answer was because they saw me as a pattern matcher. I'm the guy who gets to talk to everybody. And therefore I'm the guy who gets to see the patterns across success and then report that back to people. So I thought, all right, well, what's the answer? I should, I should know the answer to this question. What are right. the qualities of successful people? I hadn't really thought about it and I didn't have a good answer off the top of my head. And so I spent a number of years really talking to people, asking people about it, just kind of trying to figure out what are the through lines between everybody who I was writing about, both incredibly famous, like Rock and Ryan Reynolds, but also just Main Street entrepreneurs. And the answer that I came to was that the most successful people are adaptable, but how? It doesn't seem to be something people are born with. It's a skill that people are learning. And it wasn't until the pandemic when I figured out how to understand what they were doing, because the pandemic was a moment, is a moment, where everybody, especially at that very beginning, March 2020, everybody goes through the same change at the same time and right. then radically diverges on what they do. And so by tracking the people who went through what I have now called um, this wouldn't go back moment, where they, they got to this point where they say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. Understanding how they got there, the things that they were doing, not just in their business, but in their own lives and their own minds, I felt really gave me an insight into the answer to the question that people had been asking me many, many years ago. And that is what ultimately inspired me to write the book. Wow. That's amazing. I, um, <clears throat> I really, when I, when you read the book though, like, so every entrepreneur has a different mindset, right? We mm -hmm. all think differently. I mean, we're all in depth and, or some of us are serial entrepreneurs. Some of us are what I call business owners and they haven't yet become an entrepreneur. You know what I'm saying? They open a business, they're a great technician, and then they mm -hmm. find out what entrepreneurship is. Maybe it's five, 10 years from now. So I think the perception of everybody when they're reading your book, I think they take away something different, every single person of it. Um, I mean, I've been in business 30 years and I read the book and I went in, I 
probably change three, four policies in my company just because I'm a huge change advocate. I love change. And, and if you ask any one of my employees, I have 400 of them. And mm -hmm. I say to them, I said, if it's not changing, dig a six foot hole because I'm getting in because I love change. <laughs> if it's not changing, I'm not happy. But reading parts of the book is just, it was like, what am I missing? And, and I think that brings back to what you're saying with COVID, you know? So like for me in my life, I, I went back into my company this past week and I said, listen, we just went through probably the worst two and a half years in the restaurant industry. And this is one of my businesses mm -hmm. that we've ever had, but what did we learn from it? How are yeah. we changing? How are we adapting to your point and making our company better? So like I went even into saying, when you walk into the bathroom, so what's your experience in the bathroom? And they all look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, no, I want to know. Like, how are we changing that? Mm -hmm. So I, so if your book just is part of my thread. And I love really being part of it with you every morning for the last couple months here. And it didn't take me a couple months, but I've read it a couple of times. So <laughs> just taking a nugget away every single time. Oh, I really appreciate that. That's such an honor to hear. And it shows you how transferable this kind of thinking is. I really just set out to understand how people think through challenges. And the answer to that question is so broadly applicable. I, the most fascinating thing about this book has been hearing from so many kinds of people doing so many kinds of work about how hearing a particular principle or an idea or just absorbing a, a general mindset then set them in motion to make some kind of change for themselves. It's the reason why I think of entrepreneurship very much as an identity and a mindset. I think that once you absorb just the way of thinking, it starts to impact you. And as a result, you know, people always ask me, what are the stories that I look for in Entrepreneur Magazine? And um, the answer to me is, I want stories about people thinking their way through problems that I could imagine, and, and, and sometimes literally do, stand on a stage in front of a thousand people who all do totally different things and tell them how this one person thought through a challenge. And all of them, even though none of them are in the line of business that the person I'm telling the story about is, they all say, ah, that that helps me think through this challenge that I have. And that is a, I realized a powerful thing and it emboldened me to step further into this space and feel like I could really help a broad range of entrepreneurs. I, I, it's, it's just so interesting. You know, I think that sometimes we worry about, well, do we need to know or be good at everything? And, uh, I, you know, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs who maybe ran into a unsolvable challenge or discovered that they were not the right person to lead this company at this particular time or this particular line of work. And that ultimately they came to this realization that once they know what they are very good at, then they can lean heavily into that and make sure that they are putting in place people whose expertise are the things that they are not themselves experts at. And I, I have, I mean, I, I like, I've sort of been rambling here for a little bit, but I'll, I, I have a great story, but I'll, about that, which I'll, I'll tell you in a second that I want to shut up and hear what you think about <laughs> it. But I'll it. tell you the reason why I brought all of that up is to say that you listen to like, who am I, who am I? I am a media guy, right? I, I came up in right. media and at this point I am now also kind of media entrepreneur. I have my own company and a bunch of different revenue generating products, but, um, but I am not you, right? I have not built a company that has 400 employees. So why on earth should you listen to me? And the answer is because the thing that I figured out for myself is that what I'm really good at is absorbing how other people think and then reframing that information back to others in a way that they can see it apply to them. That's my, that's like my special skill set. And I think that everybody, Everybody in the world has the exact same skill. 
And that is that humans are pattern recognizers. They're pattern matchers. And the difference is just what are you good at recognizing? Like, what is the pattern that you're good at matching? My pattern is, is different than your pattern. My pattern led me to write this book and other people's patterns are going to lead them to grow businesses and then be in need of insights from books like this that you are going to help I, them You said the one thing on this. You said knowing yeah. problems equals awareness problems, right? Knowing. Yeah. And, and I... I, I tell everybody, I tease everybody, Jason. I said on my tombstone, it will say the person that tried to solve the awareness issue. Mm. Because, you know, and when you have the abilities, like you're saying, not everybody has that until you harness it. Like if you're a high level awareness person, it, it's like wearing a straitjacket every day. Yeah. Like how do they not see this? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny you say that. But, you know, listening to what you're saying, and, and I say this, and a lot of what I, I'm gathering from you is like, for me, it's like, Every business owner, you're standing in front of a thousand entrepreneurs, right? And they're all different businesses, but what they don't realize is we're all in the same exact business. Yeah. We're all in the people business, That's and right. we're all trying to accomplish it and get a result. And how do you do that? And mm-hmm. I constantly, when I teach and I mentor and I do I speak on stage, it's the same thing. You can do Q and A in an audience of a thousand people, and you can answer every question because the pure fundamentals of what we're trying to do is we're working with humans. And we're working with trying to create opportunities and solve problems and create change. And the funny thing is, like reading your book, it's, it goes into like so much about change. And I know the book, the premise is that, but people aren't good with change. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about how you've come about writing a book on change when it's probably one of the most difficult things for human beings to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to marry your question with this other thing that I just teed up a second ago, which was, you know, I, I just wanted to share a, a story that has always stuck with me, which was when I talked to Mark Randolph, who's the CEO, for, first CEO and co-founder of Netflix. And, um, and you know, why, why is Mark's name not the one that you immediately associate with Netflix? Now, you know, you associate Reed Hastings. And, uh, uh, well, that's because one day in the early days of Netflix, Netflix had, you know, grown as a tiny little startup and then somewhat plateaued. And, one day, Reed walks into Mark's office, their their co-founders, and um, and Reed says, "Hey, I want to give you a presentation." Mark says, "Sure." And they run through this presentation, the punchline of which is that Mark should step down as CEO and Reed should take over, and that's a pretty hard punchline. And uh, and Mark really sits with it, and Reed leaves, and um, he's at the office late, and you know the lights are closing down around him, and he goes home, and he has some wine with his wife, and he realizes. Mark's right. He should step down. And the reason for that is because or Mark Mark realizes that his skill his skill is taking an idea to execution, bringing something into the world. It's a, it's a very hard thing to do and he's very good at it. But what he is not is a scale CEO. He's not the guy who takes it to a billion dollars, but maybe read Back then, maybe Reed is. Turns out he was. And once Mark came to terms about that, he realized that he had a great gift. And that great gift is that now he knows exactly what his value is. He can step out of the way when he is no longer as valuable. And he can go find other circumstances in which his exact skill set is exactly what people need. That is a wouldn't go back moment, isn't it? You, You can almost watch Mark go through these four phases of change that I describe in the book, which is panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back, like really fast, uh, and and ultimately come away with a better understanding of himself and what's best for the company that he was leading. So, you know, to your question of what is it that makes change so challenging to people, you know, the answer, well, there are a lot of answers, but the big overarching answer is that change feels like loss and we are built to avoid loss is inside of our brains loss aversion theory confirmed after decades and decades of research that we are we are more focused on protecting against loss than we are in pursuing gain and as a result whenever we hear something new or we see something new come we were forced to engage in different ways the first thing that we do is we think of how 
the thing that we're already doing will no longer be as accessible to us and therefore how we might not be as relevant as we were before. And that leads to us feeling like we ourselves are losing our sense of self, our sense of relevance, our sense of value. It's not true though, because as the example with Mark goes to show, there is some loss. There's definitely loss. Mark was going to lose his job as CEO of Netflix. That is a hard loss, but he was going to gain something. And that thing that he was gaining was ultimately more valuable than being CEO of a company called Netflix that wasn't able to get out of its like slump. And that is a hard journey, but the only one that we really want to be on. I know you're saying a lot in your book, obviously, as an entrepreneur, I've founded 33 different companies. I'm, I'm that crazy serial person, right? I'm mm-hmm. the inventor. I'm the starter. And so what it is, though, but every and, and you hear this a lot from successful entrepreneurs, you know, yeah. the failures in my life have made me who I am today. Like I tell people, I don't regret a day I've lived because if mm-hmm. I, that didn't happen to me, I wouldn't be who I am today. And yeah. I really it, it's tough to understand. But I find when I talk about business owners versus entrepreneurs, right? So business owners who are a great technician, you know how to do hair really well. You open up a mm-hmm. hair salon. You have a, you buy yourself a job. But to become yeah. that entrepreneur and understanding that risk aversion, right? So mm-hmm. they're afraid to take that risk to t- take it to the next level. So they get stuck in this job for 20, 30 years, and they never become that entrepreneur because right. they're great business owners. And heck, being a business owner is unbelievable. It's a great task. I tell when I speak, I'm like, just the fact of opening a business, you've already done something amazing in the world, you know? But when, Mm -hmm. when I talk about entrepreneurships and one of my frustrating things for being an entrepreneur as a young kid on the Jersey shore was I, I had that in my blood from a young kid, but what I see in entrepreneurs and you talk about this in your book as well, entrepreneurs in corporate America, like saying you're an entrepreneur in corporate America. Well, heck, I think there's the entrepreneurs that are in corporate America are better trained than actual entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You guys know how to run meetings. You guys know how to, you know, set budgets and and forecasting and everything. You're taught that in a corporate setting. So many entrepreneurs in the world would love to have that. And they, we wouldn't have the failure rates that we do. And I know the failure rate. And we talk about that all the time was what is failure? Failure to me is an opportunity because a problem Mm -hmm. is an opportunity to me. Opportunities create solutions. So the thing is, but entrepreneurs in corporate America, they're, they're so trained, but they're afraid to take that leap to start that business. Why do you think that is? And like, is it corporate America holding people back from being entrepreneurs or do they set this fear in them? Hey, you don't want to go do that. There's a huge failure rate, like nine out of 10 business fails scares the heck out of them. Well, I, I think underneath that premise, underneath that question is a, and I don't know that you intended this, but is is a premise that entrepreneurship is a pathway that uh, that that should be more available to or taken up by more people. And I, I'm not totally sure that that's true because it is such a hard path. Uh, you know, there's it's funny. You know, I came up like I said in media, and now I spend all my time talking to entrepreneurs, and I find that both groups could say the same thing about themselves, which is that if you could do anything else, go do that because it's easier. The, the only reason to do the th- this is because you, you would not be satisfied any other way because the rewards that you can, I mean, like a uh, boy, I'll tell you, I, coming from media, there were better ways to make money and I could probably right. be making a lot more money than I, uh, than I, not probably I could be making a lot more money than I do right now. But this was the thing that I was interested in. And on entrepreneurs, similarly, entrepreneurs often make terrible employees and, uh, and they want to build. And not everybody wants that kind of instability. Not everybody wants right. to solve their way through problems every single day. Not everybody wants to do the kinds of things that you, you know, you've done even in the few minutes that we've spoken about talking about how you love constantly changing things and you're, you know, you're able to move through different failures. That's not something that everybody wants because maybe what they really like is, um, is like maybe one of the things that they just really love is, is helping teams succeed. Right. And if, and if that's, 
at your core, what you really love is walking into a situation, bringing people together and helping them all achieve greatness. You don't need to start a company to do that. You can do that inside of your own setting. I do think that, so why, let's say, let's look at people who have that calling to be entrepreneurs and, and don't take it. Why? Well, there, I think it's probably a little clearer. If you're talking about corporate America, you're probably talking about people who've spent a lot of time in that space, which means that they're older and um, maybe they're like uh, you or, or me. Uh, I'll speak for me because I know my biography better than yours. Um, you know, right. I'm 42. I have a wife and two kids. I am the uh, health insurance in the family. And I, I, I just quitting a job, uh, for a very unstable, not guaranteed path in my forties is a very hard thing to do. It sure. would have been much easier when I was 23. And that's a reason I think why a lot of great entrepreneurs started so young, not to say you can't do it when you're older, but now there are other risk factors to consider. And I think at some point, some point people say to themselves, you know, um, maybe I need to figure out how to achieve great things, but um, but without completely rocking the foundation of my family's finances. And so what's the solution to that? Better education, more support for entrepreneurs. Um, um, but also, you know, maybe part of the answer is the tools that are being created for entrepreneurs right now, because it's so much easier to stand a business up today sure. than it ever was before. And it's possible that you could start something on the side see how it grows. And if it does grow into something more stable, then you leave your corporate job and you start to run it. I think it's wonderful how many people start things on the side. Side hustle. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great thing. Some people start side hustles just to make it a couple of bucks, but I think some people start side hustles basically to explore a future career and they're trying an idea out in the marketplace. And yeah, fine. They, they're not able to put their hundred percent into it because of life circumstances, but you know, if it works, it works. And right. there have been plenty of people who have, who've left their jobs in their forties or fifties and finally pursued that thing that they've always dreamt about because they started it on the side. It's just funny, like reading about it though, entrepreneurs in corporate America, like saying, Hey, entrepreneurs, we're, we're visionaries, right? We're leaders, right? We inspire people every single day. And for me, like you're saying at 45 years old, gosh, you, you have more training so much more training at 45 being in those scenarios and boardrooms and, and dealing with marketing director and CMOs, everybody. And, but to your point, it's that taking that risk, it's jumping off that cliff and taking that risk, but maybe the side hustle and going with that approach helps them do that. But I, I, like for me, I guess being a pure entrepreneur since I was eight years old, opening my first business on the Jersey shore, for me, it seems obvious, right? But it's just that risk aversion that the people are just so afraid to take that risk. And yeah, I, I, and, and I don't want to overly romanticize taking the risk because of course you have to take the right risk for you at sure. the right time. And I, I, I mean, look, I think that everyone should take risks, but they should take calculated risks and they should take risks that make sense for them. I am where I am because I quit my first two jobs uh, right. because I didn't see them leading me towards a path that I wanted to go down. And I learned a lot in, in doing that, but I was also in my early twenties and I was able to live in a dumpy apartment next to a graveyard paying $500 a, rent, a month in rent <laughs> and, and had nobody else relying upon me. And so it was much easier to do that. Um, you know, this is another reason, by the way, that, uh, well, another, I don't know what I'm referencing with another reason, but this is a reason why when one of the things that entrepreneur covers very heavily is the franchise space and franchising is inundated right now with people who have left corporate jobs for franchising. Right. And that makes sense because there's, there's a mitigation of risk, or at least a perceived mitigation of risk happening there where you're buying into an existing system an existing brand. A lot of it is taken care of for you. And, uh, and so they see an opportunity to leave that executive role. They have some savings, they can go invest it in a franchise and then stand up a business pretty much immediately. And, uh, and, and, that's an interesting pathway uh, that makes sense for a lot of people, but it is, I think I've been in franchising think, uh, for 12 yeah. years. So I, I Oh mean, yeah. Honestly, oh, I franchised my business to just systemize my systems, 
right? Mm. And it turns out that we're getting ready to sell franchises, take our restaurant yeah. brand from seven to a hundred. And, but wow. this, it is that same thing, but it's it, developing a franchise from a founder's perspective. Wow. It's no different than opening a brick and mortar business, but it does give stability to people buying into that franchise. It's an expensive endeavor, but you have yeah. systems, process, procedures. If you can follow processes and procedure, you'll be pretty successful in a franchise system as long as you have some business acumen. Right. Right. And, th and that's the reason why these franchises have the appeal that they do. I mean, it's fascinating when I go out and talk to and I and I, I do I got I got hired to talk to a lot of franchise groups. I remember I spoke on a cruise to a dream vacations franchise uh, franchisee convention dream, dream, I mean, as you can guess, probably dream vacations, a travel right. agency franchise. And, uh, and afterwards, this, this woman who owns a dream vacations came up to me with this very old copy of entrepreneur magazine, where we always print these lists of franchises. And she showed me this page where she had like been going through the list and she circled dream vacations because it appealed to her and she did her research and she bought in and it changed her life because wow. she saw it in a list it's very cool so i i think i think that you know i, I mean i i love your i love your your enthusiasm for risk taking uh which is which is which is a, a a learned behavior, right? Which is because right. you you've done it so many times that you understand that there's going to be value on the other end of it. And and I think that the the great thing that we want to make sure we're doing, if we are anybody, and I, I'm sort of saying we to be you, me, everyone, what we represent, which is which is to say right. the people who have who have immersed ourselves in this world and really understand how um, to think through challenges to take smart risks and with the knowledge that there can be payoff on the other and like what is it that we do with that stuff i think the answer is that we help people understand how to think through those challenges for themselves so that they can feel emboldened to do it in whatever direction makes the most sense to them it's why i it's why again i love hearing people tell me that they applied things that they learned in the book to their own lives because i'm hearing it in in vast ways right i'm hearing people tell me that they 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 rethought things inside of their very large businesses and then i also hear people tell me that it just inspired them to start a side hustle or that they were you know they right. were testing out one thing or maybe it just made them rethink how they're doing their newsletter or something right it's like whatever scale makes sense to you is how you should apply the kind of thinking that you can get by absorbing the 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 risk-taking enthusiasm of the entrepreneurship world. Yeah, it's like your depth of your wisdom in the book, though, as from speaking with so many different entrepreneurs. Like, I, I am a big risk-taker, but as, as I've become older, I have a lot more wisdom and know what it mm -hmm. means to take a risk. So when I'm mentoring companies, it's the same thing for me. So I'm taking these wide-eyed, open entrepreneurs. They want to start a business, and, and, you know, it's really scaling them back, taking them back to the fundamentals, make sure they understand finance. But so they don't have that failure that I had. One of my goals in my life is mm. to help entrepreneurs win, but you've got to give them base, the basics and show them the path or show them, hey, if you take a risk, you go down this side of the Y in the, in the road, it may cause this for you. So really making them think through that process on how to be successful, not lose their livelihood. Like, you know, people see businesses closed and they're like, oh, Mary's closed. I said, no, Mary saved 10 years to open that business and now she's out of business. So the next 10 years, she's not going to have a life. She's mm -hmm. going to be in debt. And mm -hmm. it's really taking entrepreneurs and, and helping them see the small fundamentals to help them succeed. Because typically, it's not a really a huge deal that they're, they're just missing one or two steps of the fundamentals of business. Yeah, I, I think that's a really wonderful point. And it it is, I mean, well, first of all, for anybody who's who's considering pursuing this path, it, 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 should, it should widen their eyes to the number of things that they need to take into account. Um, and then if you're in the position of, of helping others, um, you know, what, what, it, what it really comes down to, I think is, you know, what you're describing almost reminds me of this conversation that I have often with a friend of mine, Nicole Lappin, we have a podcast together called help wanted, and it's the difference between being nice and being kind that, you know, there are a lot of nice people in the world and they'll tell you that right. your idea is good. But kindness is to tell people the harder things that are actually going to help them. And to grow something, to 
be a successful entrepreneur is to hear and take seriously a lot of things that you don't want to hear and that are hard to hear, sure. but that once you come to peace with them, like Mark being told that he shouldn't be CEO of Netflix anymore, that these are the things that ultimately are going to improve your journey. And so if we're on the receiving end of that, we need to recognize that a lot of our success is going to be dependent upon our willingness to be open-minded to the things that we didn't set out to hear. And that if we're on the giving side of that, that we are really honest and constructive with people and aware always of what it is that they really need. It's funny, like it, like entrepreneurs. So when I'm mentoring people, it's like you know, as an entrepreneur, we're so excited to open our business, and we miss so many steps because. But like my whole passion is to say, hey, slow down a second. Let's mm -hmm. look at every aspect. Let's look for seven revenue streams in your business. Let's really define how we're going to make money with this company because it may be a great idea, but are you going to actually be successful? Mm -hmm. Are you going to provide for your family? So I, I, I love that aspect of what we're doing. And, you know, talking with you, it's like, I feel like you're the grandmaster of entrepreneurship because, you know, in business, I call it the loneliest profession in the world. And I really right. do. But you've had such an amazing opportunity to sit with so many entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are afraid to have a coach or afraid to have a mentor, but you've actually had the ability to really sit with so many people and your wealth of information is most likely unlike most people in the world because you've had such a great opportunity that the magazine you work with is for and forfeited you it's given you that opportunity to really have that ability yeah uh i appreciate that it's i i, I feel that way myself i have been honored and fascinated by the experience uh of being able to talk with all these folks and you know what's so interesting is you talk to entrepreneurs and they are a exceptionally earnest bunch uh, <laughs> because I think that they come to realize pretty fast that the only way to make this work is to get really real and to be just kind of strip yourself down to the down to the bone. And, no doubt. and so they connect really well with people who are able to engage in that level. I, I, I've taken this approach uh, to the way that I talk to entrepreneurs and, and, you know, maybe, you know, you see it in the book. It's the reason why I went in the direction that I did with it. It's, it, you know, the book gets so personal and it, and it asks, it asks a lot of the people who I spoke to, to share very personal insights. And then it asks a lot really of the reader to reflect upon themselves. And that's because I just started, I just started to treat all my conversations with entrepreneurs like therapy sessions, uh, right? Where um, I love it. Where we just start, we just start digging in pretty quick on like what it is, what it is that you learned um, by things going wrong, and the it, it's awesome because entrepreneurs are really always willing to go there. I, I didn't love before entrepreneur. I was at Fast Company. I didn't like being at Fast Company, and the reason was because we were often talking to executives at fast growth venture backed companies right. and um and you know those people have a narrative that they need to get out into the media and whenever we would talk to them they would generally be really on brand and on message and and I don't like talking to people who are who are doing that because what 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 what's the point you know i mean at right. that point I'm, I'm at that point i'm a publicist scripted um, right yeah but entrepreneurs are just a totally different bunch uh and, and you sit down with them and They'll just, uh, you know, as long as they think that you're, you're doing it with right intentions, they'll just like spill their whole guts out to you. And I that love doesn't that. happen enough, Jason, though. What I was saying, yeah. my point to you, that doesn't yeah. happen enough in our world. Like yeah. how much can but, we benefit from other entrepreneurs talking with each other? And the crazy thing is that it, it could, there's nothing that you would think really, I understand that when somebody talks to me, there's an incentive to doing so. They basically, you're willing to say whatever it is that I, whatever it is that I'm asking, they're willing to answer the question. And the reason for that is because the benefit is going to be coverage in a magazine and, and that'll outweigh whatever discomfort they might have about sharing how something went wrong to me. But 
but but they're still willing to do it when I'm interviewing them and I'm going to put whatever they say in a magazine. Like now, imagine removing the whole magazine thing and the and the the the, the weight of that. And just having two entrepreneurs who are both feeling comfortable with each other, I think that the the sharing, the the willingness to share is there. I think the reason why it doesn't happen more is probably because one side is afraid that the other side won't do it back. Um, and I agree so, with you too. Yeah. But to another point, I think there's a, uh -huh. entrepreneurs are afraid to admit like they're failing. They all want to say they're great, like they don't have a problem. And they, as entrepreneurs, like we're we open a business and then we're so afraid of failing in the beginning that mm -hmm. no, we're great. I'm doing great. Everything's mm -hmm. good. I don't need any help. And it's really breaking down those barriers to like what you're saying. When, when I sit with entrepreneurs, when they accept me helping them, they, they, they do, they, they dump everything out there. I'm not making yeah. money. I can't see my wife. I don't have my, right. I never see my kids. And it's not until that point that you, you can't help them until they break down those barriers. Yeah. Uh, something that always stuck with me, this isn't in the book, but I, I, years ago, okay. Years ago, I was talking to an entrepreneur in Nairobi and she was telling me about how one of the things that she really is jealous of in the, of the American entrepreneurial ecosystem is the acceptance of failure. And she said that like that culturally just doesn't exist in the African startup scene. And the wow. reason she said, and then I started, this was fascinating to me. And so I started asking entrepreneurs and other, um, in other kind of more developing entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world. And they all re reported the same thing. It's not about Africa. What it is, is it's about the early stages of an entrepreneurial ecosystem, because what we have in America is enough stories of people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg right. and whatever, who like quit a job or quit college or whatever. And they like did this crazy thing. And then it turned into this big, that it means that family and friends of people who want to pursue that path, understand what that path is. Oh yes, that makes sense. I see how this idea could actually turn into something. But when you don't have those stories, in a culture because they just haven't gone through enough time yet to develop the people who are the story. Well, then what happens is that somebody in Nairobi wants to be an entrepreneur, maybe wants to quit their job and do it. I mean, to go back to this kind of risk assessment that we were talking about earlier. Um, and their family is like, are you crazy? No, that is a terrible idea. And their friends right. are like, absolutely do not do that. Right. And so it strips away everything. And therefore if they go and do it, they do not want to show anybody that anything is going wrong because everyone will immediately just say, I told you so, what are you doing? Get out of there. And so they're, they're ultra protective of, of their vulnerability. Yeah. Now, That's exactly what, is the result what I was saying. Of that? Yeah. And what is the result of that? Here's the result of that. The result of that is that they're incredibly stressed, incredibly. They have no outlet. They're totally alone. And when they talk to investors, Investors, particularly if you're, you know, an investor from America or Europe who's coming in to to try to fund um, startups in, let's say, Nairobi, I I talked to investors who who do this, and they said, you know, one of the greatest challenges is we'll sit down with this entrepreneur. They have a great idea. They seem really talented, motivated, um, but we cannot get them to acknowledge that anything is going wrong in the business, and that makes us feel like they're hiding something and because we don't know what it is and because we can't see how they're thinking through problems we don't right. know whether or not we can support them whereas in america entrepreneur or investors are often very happy to hear about an entrepreneur's failures because what they're also hearing is how they problem solve their way through it and an investor knows that whatever the entrepreneur is doing now is not what's going to ultimately lead this company to, you know, a 10 X return. It's going to be that there are going to be 20 different failures along the way. And the entrepreneur is going to have to pivot. And so the question is what kind of person are you investing in? Not just what kind of idea are you investing in? Right. So, so this is a really, really interesting dynamic that goes to show you how dangerous it can be 
to hold all that stuff super close to the chest because it means that you're overstressed and it means that other people won't trust you. And that counterintuitively, even though it may not feel like it, being more vulnerable, being open about the challenges will first connect you better to other people, to other entrepreneurs who can just be in your support system, to investors and other partners who are going to be willing to trust you because they can see how you think through natural challenges that are going to come up. Um, and also how it's just going to be a release valve so that you don't feel like you're carrying around all of this like shame and, and, right. and failure. Uh, I see it. The, I see it the every more day. You, yeah. You have to release that stuff. I see it every day. And, and it really, it, it starts deteriorating. The family starts deteriorating. The relationship mm -hmm. with your children starts deteriorating because they're so afraid to let go. And I, and I know it may not be as prominent in America, but I feel that every day when I speak to entrepreneurs, they're so afraid. And when I start breaking them down and working with them, it, it's, it takes a little while for them to do that. I'm um, mm -hmm. part of a couple organizations. And, you know, the first time you go to one of these big board meetings, you're, the, you're afraid to talk when you get in there. And yeah. it takes like, you know, six, seven months, and then you start opening up a little bit. But it's it's breaking that ice from the beginning. I want to go to a change thing I loved in your book was sure. about when you moved to Colorado with your wife yeah. and how that was so foreign to you. So I'm from Jersey and grew up on the shore as a kid, and I moved to Virginia. And I'm like, mm. it was like culture shock. And I know you grew up in, my, in Florida and then back to New York and then Colorado. But tell me a little bit about like how you adapted with change in your family life being in biz a businessman and doing that and then moving your entire family during COVID and, and, and then being able to come back to New York and be successful because New York and New Jersey is in my heart. I moved to Virginia, but I'm surrounded by a bunch of New York and New Jersey people. So it's kind of easy, but Colorado, yeah. I'm sure was not that way. No, it's, it's, it's totally different out there. So just for context, so people understand, um, I, I live in Brooklyn. I speak to you now from Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn in, um, and I moved to New York in 2000 and, Eight, and I was living in Brooklyn when the pandemic began. I, my wife, and at the time we had like a baby, like a crawling around baby, and a four-year-old, and we were living in a two-bedroom, thousand-square-foot apartment. So we were thinking to ourselves, we don't know. Nobody knew how how long lockdowns are going to be. What's going to happen? But we just thought if we're trapped inside this apartment, we're going to go absolutely crazy, and. We were fortunate enough. I mean, we have a lot of friends who were trapped in their apartments for a long time and basically did go crazy. But we were fortunate in that my parents have a house in Boulder, Colorado, and my sister and her family live in Boulder as well. And so, and my parents said, "Come stay with us. Like we have the room, so come stay." And so we thought, "Well, let's let's go. Um, the kids will be able to run around. We'll we'll have access to the outdoors." it will just be a better situation for however long it'll be. We of course did not anticipate that it would be 18 months is how long we were there wow. because we were able to get the kids, we were able to get the kids into summer camp and then to school out in Colorado. And it was not as straightforward of a situation in New York. So we just, we stayed for 18 months. So we functionally moved to Colorado for a year and a half. And I at first was, I hated it. I was deeply resistant to it um, because Part of it was just bias. I was thinking, you know, my my people are in New York and the culture in Boulder is, you know, people are out there for in part the lifestyle of it. You know, like Boulder is a beautiful town. It's right up against the mountain. People are really outdoors, either hiking their bike and they're they're smoking a lot of weed. And right. uh, and Colorado. Uh, yeah. And I just I was just like, I, I these are not our people. I don't I don't like being here. Um, and I felt really attached to the way in which I thought of myself as a New Yorker, which is a kind of hard charger, you know, working a lot. So that's, that's what we, that's what we did. Um, I mean, you know, we also had to juggle the kids and everything, all that other stuff, but over time, this fascinating thing happened to me, which is that I started to try out the culture there. Uh, we met some, we made some friends. They were all very nice and interesting. They were not the stereotype that we had. I started to bike, I started to hike, I started to go out and, and, you know, put the computer down in the middle of the day and like do a physical activity, which I never did in New York. And I started to realize maybe there's something here that I need. And, you know, I've mentioned this wouldn't go back moment a couple of times in our conversation. It's the payoff in the book. You know, the book is structured in these four phases of change, panic, adaptation, wouldn't go back or new normal and wouldn't go back. And, um, and I, you know, I thought a lot about while I was out there, like what, what does wouldn't go back look like for me? Um, 
does it look like we don't go back to New York? I thought about it, but frankly, and possibly if my wife was into it, I, we would have stayed in Colorado, but she really wasn't. She wanted to come back to New York. And so we weren't going to stay in Colorado. Then I came back to New York and, and I, I kept thinking, well, okay, I'm, I'm back here, but am I just back here? Like did nothing change? No, something changed, but what, what is it exactly? And, um, you know, what, what I've, what ended up happening and this happened after the book was written was that we moved, uh, we, we, we left this hip, very dense neighborhood that we were in called park slope, uh, where we had that thousand square foot apartment and we moved deeper into Brooklyn into a not hip area of Brooklyn, but we were able to afford a house. Um, and so now we have, uh, I have my own office. The kids have their own bedrooms, like things we didn't awesome. have before. Um, and we have a little backyard, which is adorable. And we're, I took some of what we had in Boulder and I applied it to New York. And I also have been, I, I struggle with this admittedly, but I try to be more mindful about, about taking breaks, about taking some care of myself, like doing some of the things that came more naturally in Boulder than it does in New York. And I realized that, you know, your wouldn't go back moment doesn't have to be as stark as wouldn't go back. It doesn't mean that you have to change everything. It's just that you, you change, you change the parts that needed changing. And those parts can be integrated into some of the things that you do before, right? It's like, just because you, uh, you know, like Tony, just because you say you like change doesn't mean that like after this conversation, just for the hell of it, you're going to shut your business down and start <laughs> another one, right? Like it doesn't work that way, right? It, it's, it's really just about making sure that we're always being mindful that literally everything that we do can be upgraded. That just because we're familiar with one way of doing something doesn't mean that it's the only way to do it. Even if some of the shape of what we're doing doesn't actually change because it works for us. I love living in Brooklyn. I, 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 we're not going to live anywhere else, especially after what we just paid for this house. Uh, but, um, but that doesn't mean that parts of how I live my life here can't change and that there are like, moments to find. So, so what resonated with me when you said you moved to Colorado, you know, change, totally crazy change in life. I know where you're from. I've been yeah. used to work in Manhattan. So for me, you take that back to entrepreneurship and you take it mm -hmm. back to these entrepreneurs that are stressed, that are scared, that are frustrated every day, trying to hire people all through these changes that we're going through with COVID. And you take a step back and you, you start working out or you start doing something different. You take a, a week off because, you know, where our entrepreneurial minds really grow is when you get out of your business and you start working on it instead of in it. And I know that's a cliche and people say, it, but it is so damn true. Like when you mm -hmm. can leave for a week, when I leave on vacation, it's like people are like, oh, my God, you came back with all these ideas. What did you work all week? I said, no, I didn't work. I actually gave my mind a second to be creative again and think. Yeah. And. When I, when I hear your story going to Colorado, it's like I moved my whole family down to Virginia and I was just like, wow, this is like culture shock for me. But it gave me such an amazing opportunity to really have a different vision because I was stuck in the grind up in Northern Jersey and we were rolling every day and you don't have time to think. Just driving down the street success. I mean, stressful as hell. So mm -hmm. I just really loved it. Loved that part of your book. It was really humanizing for you just to see that real part of you to say, hey, I'm a high level entrepreneur in Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm stressed every day. I'm, I'm fighting it. And to take that second to step back, I think we all can learn from that in one way or another. And to get meta about it, what you're describing is also something that we were just talking about entrepreneurs needing to do more, which is to get personal. The, like I, I put a bunch of myself in the book and it's not because I'm that interesting. It's because I know that I can in a way be the stand-in for the reader and that the reader will trust me more if I'm sharing how I am going through the things that they're going through. Right, you're vulnerable. Um, right? Like, yeah, I don't want to just tell you what other people do. I want to tell you that I'm trying to figure it out too because I will, I, I, I will tell you, um, I mean, just to, I guess just to put a point on on what we were talking about, about, about the, the value of being, being vulnerable before, I, I learned this early on in my time at Entrepreneur. I had been asked to speak at a college, um, whatever it was, it was some, it was some college event years and years ago in California. And, um, I gave this talk and then I was on a panel with some other entrepreneurs and, 
at some point, I, I somebody asked some question and it led me to share the story about how I got fired from a job a long time ago and uh, um, and um, and how embarrassing it was and what I did after and and uh, and afterwards, this girl comes up to me and she says, "I just really wanted to thank you for um, for being vulnerable like that. It really, you know, like wow. it was, it really helped me and." And I said to her, you know, because the thought just popped into my head as soon as I, as soon as she said it, I said, you know, the funny thing is that, um, like I, it wasn't actually that much of a risk for me to do that because I have learned that when you are vulnerable, you actually just bring people towards you. Like sure. it wasn't, it's not a, once you realize that you realize that being vulnerable isn't a risk, it's an asset. And I said to her, you know, if you, the next time you have the opportunity, you share something about your, yourself and what you will find is that someone else will come up and thank you for doing it. Wow. And, um, and I, I tried to take that. Well, thank you. I tried to take that lesson for myself and kind of constantly apply it, which is just to you know, it's like, it's not like vulnerability is a brand, but you know, it's like, it's just, it's an asset and you use it where it's, where it's, where it's valuable. And it is often the connection point for people that when you're telling a story of the thing that you're doing, people can't see themselves in your success, but they certainly can see themselves in your struggles. And that's the, that's the door that you open. So fun. So something you might not know about me, um, my book's being published by Forbes books right now. I'll be out in March. So great. Um, love your post on Instagram when you're running around Manhattan and you go from your apartment to your house. Just so freaking funny. (laughs) I was dying. I was like rolling off my couch. Oh, thanks. uh, but the fun thing is like, tell me like, you know, for me, I, I wrote a book during COVID, started five businesses during COVID, like craziness, yeah. but wow. tell me your experience with writing a book and how daunting was that? I mean, so I'm sitting there like reading your book. I'm like, oh, he's an editor. I mean, this must've been so easy for him to write a book compared to me, you know? So, uh, just oh, tell no, me it's your not. experience. <laughs> it's, it's not, I, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, look, I have some advantages, um, in that I'm, i you know, I, I was professionally written and edited for the for my whole career, so I, I have a skill set that I go into it with. But just because you know how to do one thing does not mean that you know how to do another, right? right? I mean, that's true in any kind of business. Just because you know how to run a restaurant does not mean you know how to run a hotel. Like they're no they're 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 different. There are some, but but there, there are some there are some some transferable skills. Sure. And so you have to identify what those things are, but then you also have to identify what you don't know and that you need to learn and how how to apply those skills in new ways. So for me, what I knew how to do was write magazine articles, and my my editor at Penguin Random House. Um, after he saw the first four chapters of the book, that was our plan. He was like, go write the first four chapters and send them to me. He called me up and he was like, all right, well, um, so good start. But the problem is that you just wrote four magazine articles. Like they don't <laughs> connect to each other, right? Like they're not, they're right. not building. It's not a book. Um, it's, it's random articles. So now we have to think about how do you actually make a coherent narrative in a whole book? And that took a lot of time. Um, I, that took some humbling in that I thought I can do this. I wrote those four chapters really quick. Right. And, um, it also took studying how really good people do it. I, I went through a lot of books, just looking at structure, how are they structuring the book? Literally, like how many sections are the book? How, what, how many chapters of the book? What are they doing in each one? How does one lead to the next? How does, how does the end of one chapter tee up the start of the next, the next chapter? One. Just like what, what is the connective tissue? What are the, what's the blueprint that people are using? And once I, once I absorbed that, I realized that I needed to restructure how I thought about this book. And, and, you know, just like an entrepreneur will start a business with the knowledge that the thing that they're building is going to have to change. I mean, when, when Matthew Benjamin is my editor at, at, at Harmony, which is a division, division of Penguin Random House, when, when Matthew acquired my book, he told me in the first conversation, he said, you know, (laughs) Um, the structure that you have proposed here is not going to work, but you'll figure out the structure as, as you go. It. And, um, and it's true. I mean, as you know, my, my, my book is, is structure. It's, it's, it's a four section structure, panic adaptation, new normal wouldn't go back. It did. So I, I pitched it as a book in halves. The first half would be about how we, why we panic. And the second, the, the first half will be about why we panic over change. And the second half will be about how we overcome it. Uh, and, uh, and that didn't, you know, like just when I started writing, that just didn't make sense. 
and uh, and I, I needed to step back and figure out a different way to do it. So awesome. the, I love the answer the fact is that you narrated yeah. your book too. Like oh, in the me, audiobook. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, I listened to your audiobook. That's how I read your book. Through. Oh, thanks. I, I listened to it, and the cool part about it, I, I get so many audiobooks every once in a while, and it's not the author. I was, yeah. And, yeah. and I'll put I'll put it down right away. And it was so cool. Um, I'm like, I'm like, is that his voice? Is that who he is? So I wasn't quite sure at first, but amazing job. Oh, I want to ask you. you a real quick question too about, so yeah. I'm a speaker and I speak like on stages like that. So I'm, I'm having a massive conference in April 24, 25th and 26th. Cool. What is, what is your, like when, when you get on, when I get on stage, I almost black out at times when I'm on stage mm. and like, I, I, sometimes I'll forget, I get so caught up in the moment of teaching mm. and and doing that. Um, my, my whole conference is about experience creation in business, right? So yeah. um, I call myself an experience creator. I teach everybody, everybody I mentor, I tell them their employees are experience creators. They're not employees. They're not mm -hmm. architects or experience creators. And so when, you, when you're up on stage, what is the message that you love getting across? What do you like to see from the audience perspective when you're up on that stage? And what do you feel? Well, the thing that I want to do is I want to get the audience thinking about themselves. And so I'm really, I'm watching the audience to see who's connecting, who's following, who's clearly doing a lot of self-reflection as I'm talking. But I have a, I have a philosophy about, well, I have a lot of philosophies about speaking, um, but the one that I'm thinking about is people, look, in any situation, doesn't matter if it's watching a talk, going to a wedding, I mean, anything. People will remember like one or two things. Right. That's it. That's it. So instead of trying to buck that, instead of saying, well, people may remember one or two things, but I'm going to give them a hundred things. I'm going to pack this as dense as possible. It's not my attitude. My attitude is let me go in knowing what people are going to remember so that I can maximize that, make it as memorable as possible, and then spend my time with them being enjoyable and being thoughtful and doing things that are ultimately going to help them remember and engage with the one or two things that I know they're going to remember. So, so it's I structure- what is it? What is it? What's I, have to, I have to interrupt you. What is your one thing? I have to know. It's burning Oh me. well. Oh, well, you know, it's- Look, it, it's it's an extension of the thing that we're talking about right now. Like ultimately, what I want, really, like the, the talk that I give or the talk that I usually give, is is very much oriented around the things from the book, which is um, which is, but it's it's helping people think about themselves as more adaptable than they currently do, Love and it. and so I I I have a bunch of different ways to do that, but the way that I structure my talk is generally um, I have a I have an intro. Um, where I, I open up with this kind of crazy story from history because I want to I want to um, undercut people's expectations of me uh, as as just a guy who's going to talk business. I come and I tell them this wacky history story, and then I bring it back to business, and then I make it personal, and um, and I set up the, this this need to think of ourselves as more adaptable. And then I go into I have three or four, depending on how much time I have on stage, modules which are basically a big idea with a really engaging, compelling story that brings the idea to life and then hammer it home at the end with some insight or an exercise. But there, there are not that many of them, right? So if you were to, if you were to plot out my, my talk, I have this intro that's basically a scene setter. Then I have one, two, three, maybe four ideas. And then I spend with each idea five, seven minutes telling a story, just a, a, you know, a fun story that people are going to enjoy. And I, and I, um, um, I, I bring in audio or, and, and in some cases, some video, like sometimes I'll, I'll reference, I'll be telling a story about somebody who I met and something that they told me, and then I'll have the audio come on kind of like a podcast and, uh, and then, and then an outro that gives people like one final thing to think about. It's not that many ideas, but I don't need that many ideas. I need right. somebody to have one thing that they walked away from that tomorrow they will say, I am still thinking about that and that that guy told me these stories that helped me really attach that idea to my own set of knowledge you know the way that we learn is through scaffolding we attach new information to existing information that you can't learn like you don't learn things when you're attaching like new information to new information it, nothing sticks it has to be new information to existing information what's already in your head and then how can i tell you something so that you can see exactly how to apply it to the things that are already inside of your head the more that you do that, the more relevant you will be. Don't worry about density. Just worry about value. 
I love it. And, you know, just talking with you for an hour, it's been absolutely amazing, Jason. But it's like you're the way I, I picture you is you're like the encyclopedia of entrepreneurs and like that deep mind in the brain of an entrepreneur. And you have so many sections of your brain, but you have so much experience and the vast amount of entrepreneurs that you spoke to. I would love to just read a book on your excerpts from all the entrepreneurs that you've actually interviewed. If you could put that all in a book, I think it would help educate so many entrepreneurs all over the world. And honestly, uh, I was excited to talk with you today and, and just be in your presence and really have a great conversation with you today because I really, I think your, your focus in life is not much different than mine as far as helping entrepreneurs and, and, and you're doing it through a, writing it out or theories or and these articles that you're producing and you know we're both doing it one-on-one -on, -one on stage together and i truly feel connected to you and it's been an unbelievable opportunity for me to speak with you today oh well thanks so much that's so so, so kind of you i really appreciate it and, and congratulations on everything you've done your upcoming book your you know your businesses um Thank it you. is uh it is a it is a great it feels like a great accomplishment for me to write something and have someone like you read it and find it relevant so thank you yeah it was it was unbelievable and i'm sure i'm going to read it again because like i said i've already brought that change into my companies and as much as i'm a change advocate to hear it from somebody else's perspective it really you know it's just a different idea and a different approach and hopefully somebody it'll resonate with that one employee that day yeah absolutely yeah. thanks so thank much thank you so much it was wonderful talking with you